Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll get an update on a degenerative brain disease that can develop after repeated head injuries called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I think we will be seeing maybe changes in uh, the rules of sports or uh, guidelines for practices. Then we'll segue into a discussion about concussions in a related interview with experts from the Upstate Concussion Center. One of the biggest problems is people don't know when a concussion occurs and they don't take the proper steps to manage it. And we'll learn about which skin care issues are most important for seniors. You have to take it as a case-by-case basis. Why is this patient itching? Is it just because they have dry skin? Or do they have an underlying disease that's causing them to itch? All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore science, medicine, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about skin care for seniors, and we'll discuss the diagnosis and management of concussion. But first, an update on the degenerative brain disease known as CTE. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may have heard of CTE in relation to football players or members of the military. Today we have two experts in physical medicine and rehabilitation who will discuss this progressive degenerative disease of the brain. We have Dr. Claudine Ward, an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate, and Chief Psychologist Brian Rieger from the same department, and he's also the program director of the Upstate Concussion Center. Welcome to you both. Happy to be here. Morning. So CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. What is that? Well, as you mentioned, it is a progressive neurodegenerative disease. And what that means is we have neuronal or brain cell uh, dysfunction and death. It's a type of uh, tauopathy, which is an abnormal buildup of a protein called tau. And it's accumulated in particular parts of the brain. And tau is only in the brain? Not exclusively, but it's found predominantly there in this particular disease. So why are we hearing about this in relation to football players or military members? So chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a disease that, as far as we know, the primary risk factor is repeated brain trauma such as might be suffered in football or other contact sports, hockey, soccer, and of course in the military where soldiers are exposed to blast and other concussive types of trauma to the head. Okay. All right. Because that's what you hear about in the news. But um, I, I also read recently in the news that doctors for the first time were able to diagnose CTE in a living person. So why is that significant? 
It's significant because currently the only way to diagnose CT is through biopsy. I'm sorry, autopsy, autopsy. which is a, a brain exam, an examination of the brain after death. So we can't do, we can't make this diagnosis in a live person yet. So the ability to diagnose CTE in a live person is significant because uh, we have a better chance of understanding the disease process, but perhaps more importantly, seeing if we're able to treat it. So what do you look for as a clinician then? That's a good question, Amber, because while the article you reference indicates that we've been able to find tau in the brain suggestive of CTE in a living person, it is still not established yet what the link between the presence of tau in the brain and the clinical symptoms or features of CTE. So what we know, the neuropathology of CTE is now well-defined. It's a very characteristic tau deposits in certain places in the brain. What we don't know yet is what are the actual clinical features of CTE. And when we see tau, to what extent is that explaining to us what we're seeing clinically? So that's a link that we don't have yet, and we need a lot more research to understand that. But as Dr. Ward mentioned, the ability to do research on CTE is significantly advanced by a, the ability to detect that tau in the brain. Well, it sounds like there's still a lot of puzzle pieces to put together, but not the least of which is even if you were able to connect what you see on an autopsy with the symptoms that the person might have had, what do you do about it? That That's a million-dollar question. I mean, we, we would... The, the study is significant, going back to the study, the, it's, it's significant because uh, we want a way to diagnose it. And right now, it's our best guess. So we, in terms of what we look for for CTE, it's a history of repetitive blows uh, to the head. And that could be either uh, actually frank concussion um, or where they have symptoms, or it's or subconcussive blows in which a person may have had a hit to the head, but they didn't have obvious symptoms afterwards. Along with that, we look for the symptoms associated with CTE, which are not unique to CTE. We can also see them following concussion. It also has to do with the time frame that these things are developing. So um, in, in terms of CTE, it, it looks like uh, that people typically develop these symptoms midlife, so later in life. And in addition to that, it's years after the exposure to the, to the hits. So you may have, for example, in football players, you may have someone who retired and they're not getting the repetitive blows, and yet they develop these symptoms years later, eight, nine years later. So it's like a dormant right damage right. that's dormant for well, a while. I, I, we believe. Yeah. And in some cases, it's, they, it can occur earlier. So some, in some cases, the symptoms are occurring in their 20s. But whether that's the same uh, entity or whether that person is predisposed to, uh, to, to uh, demonstrating these symptoms, we really don't know. Um, but we look for the symptoms that are different in the beginning, and then they become more progressive as the, dis the disease advances. I think an important point uh, that Dr. Ward just made is that the disease, in some cases, will continue to progress even after an athlete or a soldier no longer is suffering that sort of repeated brain trauma. What's interesting is they found early evidence of CTE in athletes as young as 18, 
What we don't know is, is it always progressive? Dr. Ann McKee from uh, the Boston group doing a lot of work in this area uh, feels that there may be a threshold that you cross at some point where the disease goes from just some tau deposits to this progressive dementia. But we don't know that. Does it always become progressive? Are there risk factors? Um, why do some people develop this and others don't? So I know we're talking a lot about what we don't know today, Amber, but that should be a take-home well, message uh, about CTE. There seems like point. there's a, a lot to still learn about it. But you've both mentioned tau deposits in the brain, and I've heard that in relation to dementia. So is there any connection between dementia and CTE, or do we think there might be? Well, CTE can cause dementia. And, and CTE, as I mentioned before, is a tauopathy, and as well as Alzheimer's, but they look different in terms of the, the, neuro, um, the neuropathological changes in the brain, for one. And they also may present uh, differently. So it is a cause, but it's, but it's not, not everybody who has CT is going to uh, develop dementia. Okay. To your point, though, Amber, it's only recently that international criteria were established for the neuropathology of CTE to really distinguish it from things like other dementias, and that was an important step. Uh, some people were arguing that CTE wasn't really a unique entity, that perhaps it did just uh, mimic other conditions, but I think there's little debate about that at this point. Again, what we don't know is how does it get started? How does it progress? Is it concussions or is it just repeated blows to the head? What are the clinical features? Right, whether, whether it is um, dependent on concussion. Um, well, related to concussion, some people suggest, you know, football is to blame for this. And that, I mean, but do we know that even for sure? Well, again, the the... Uh, it's believed, the repetitive blows to the head are believed to trigger this disease. It's important to note that it's not an accumulation of prior injuries. So in other words, we're not, we're not talking about getting a concussion and then you have uh, neuronal uh, or, or brain cell death and then you have another concussion and it's an additive response. That's a, not at all what we're talking about. It really is its own uh, entity in terms of the, there is a trigger and we believe it's the repetitiveness of the, of the blows, um, but it's not to say we shouldn't confuse concussion with CTE. They're, they're not the same entity. And I would say the epidemiology of CTE is still not well understood, again, going back to the need for more research. Obviously, it's a very bad thing when it happens, and no one would want to have CT or have their child develop CT. But the fact is that at this point, we think that many, 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 many more people who play football or other sports do not go on to develop CTE uh, versus those who do. So um, Dr. Ward and I were talking about this prior to the interview, that I think one of the good things that's happened is that CTE has raised awareness about head trauma in sports and, and made us ask the question, what is an acceptable risk at 8, at 12, at 16, at 25? Um, and so as we learn more, I think we will be seeing maybe changes in 
the rules of sports or uh, guidelines for practices or things like that. We've already seen some of that based on concussion. Um, but in terms of um, trying to prevent CTE, if we stopped the repetitive blows, would that necessarily prevent CTE? At this point, the the primary risk factor that, that you know that's known is repeated brain trauma. Um, so then it becomes a question of how much do we throw much? the baby out with the bathwater? So we know that sports are uh, hugely beneficial um, for youth uh, in particular, and so I think there is a lot of debate going on right now about the balances of. Uh, the benefits of sports participation versus the risks that we we know are there. We just don't know exactly who's at risk and when that risk becomes significant enough that we need to do something about it. I also want to mention, and it goes back to your your previous question of you know why are we why do we hear this uh, in regards to the American football uh, uh, players and and military members. The majority of research is coming uh, out from Boston University and the Brain uh, Bank associated uh, uh, with the, the university, and that's through um, Anne McKee's work predominantly. And the majority of the donors are actually former uh, football players and military uh, members. So I think it is also important to note that their CTE has been diagnosed in, in brains through autopsy in other uh, in other athletes, other types of athletes, such as boxers, professional hockey players, okay. and even non-athletes. So it's not just in football players and military members that we do have good, to, good to be concerned about. And it goes back to this idea that when we do an autopsy and we find tau in a football player, right now we think, oh, that must be the reason that they were having the symptoms that they were having. But we don't entirely know yet the link between finding that very characteristic neuropathology and the clinical features. So a lot of people who are donating their brains think, oh, I've got problems. It must be CTE. Let me donate my brain. They find tau. But that link still needs to it's be not better necessary. established. Oh. Yeah. Very interesting. From the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, my guests have been Chief Psychologist Brian Rieger, he's the Program Director of the Upstate Concussion Center, as well as Dr. Claudine Ward, who is the Medical Director for the Upstate Concussion Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. stay with us. When we come back, we'll discuss the diagnosis and management of concussion. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air.
Concussion is a traumatic brain injury that affects the way your brain functions. It can happen during contact sports or from slipping and falling and hitting your head. Um, Today we'll hear from two concussion experts from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. Dr. Claudine Ward, who's the medical director of the Upstate Concussion Center, and Chief Psychologist Brian Rieger, who's the program director of the Upstate Concussion Center. Thank you both for being here. Morning, Amber. So let's talk about what counts as a concussion. Is every head injury necessarily a concussion? So as you mentioned, uh, a concussion is uh, an injury to the brain, and that's very important. So when we talk about diagnosing a concussion, we don't have a specific medical test for that. What we're looking for is some evidence that the brain has been affected. So we're looking for symptoms or signs suggestive of brain dysfunction, such as thinking problems, poor coordination, headaches, dizziness, things like that. So you can have a blow to the head and even develop a headache, and it's not necessarily a concussion. Um, Do you have to lose um, consciousness? No. No, the majority of people don't lose consciousness, but we do look for alteration in mental status. So someone may be confused, um, someone may actually have amnesia, so they may have loss of memory surrounding the event. So those are things that might be clues that you need to be, I don't know, do you need to go to the hospital if you think you've had a concussion necessarily? or? No, there are certain things that, uh, certain signs and symptoms that we would say you need to go to the hospital. Not everyone needs to go to the hospital. But if uh, if you have a uh, certain types of mechanisms of injury, so if you had a you were involved in a car accident, if you had a significant fall, you're going to want to go to the hospital. But in terms of what you're looking for in your loved one, if they're confused, if they have nausea or vomiting that doesn't get better, same thing with a headache if it doesn't get better, if they have localized signs, so they might have weakness on one side or numbness and tingling on one side, um, seizure would also be another reason to go to the hospital. Um, and in, in infants or in young children who may not be able to communicate typically, things like inability to console them would be a reason to bring them in. Okay. It's important that you uh, seek medical evaluation in the event of suspected concussion, but you don't necessarily need to go to the hospital. One of the main things that will happen at a hospital is they'll be able to do a CT scan of the brain, but we need to make sure people understand that when a CT scan is done, in most cases, it's normal. It doesn't show a problem with the brain. The CT scan is actually usually helpful in detecting something that might be worse than a concussion, Uh such as bleeding in the brain, swelling in the brain, a skull fracture that might alter our management of the injury. But in most cases with a concussion, the brain looks fine on clinical imaging, but it's not working properly. Okay, because you said there's not a test, a specific test to say it's a concussion, so... It's really a diagnosis that's made by taking a good history, asking the patient how they feel, observing and evaluating their functioning. Well, is that... A head injury, one of the things where you can sort of wait and see until the next day whether you get better or worse? 
Again, um, I, it depends on, on the symptoms, symptoms, right? Okay. So if you have the symptoms, you would want to go to an urgent care or emergency department. And what you would expect there is really a thorough history and physical exam. And the physical exam is going to uh, be looking for any um, evidence of a uh, severe neck injury in addition to any changes neurologically. And, and it really is helpful to know from a trained professional, is this a concussion or not? If it is a concussion, then you want to take extra care, for example, not to hit your head again uh, until you're recovered. Uh, and you can get education at that clinical visit about what to expect in terms of the signs or symptoms, what are some things you might be able to do to uh, feel better during your recovery period. So um, there's a lot of good that can come out of that evaluation, even if, again, uh, they don't do a CT scan or the CT scan is normal. So what are the sort of the treatments that you recommend for someone who has a possible concussion? So rest is really the cornerstone of concussion management. And so does rest mean not sitting on your phone texting? <laughs> well, no, it, it, it doesn't mean only that, okay. uh, but that's one of the things that might aggravate your symptoms. And the real point uh, is that uh, the brain isn't functioning well, and if you ask it to do things, it may rebel and give you headache and nausea and dizziness or other problems. So especially for the first 24 to 48 hours, uh, probably really resting and really taking it easy makes sense. But we don't want people, as I say, we don't want to put people in concussion jail and completely isolate them uh, from their phones or TVs or video games. But people should use common sense. If it starts to aggravate your symptoms, then take a break uh, and, and get away from it. And by resting, we do not mean bed rest. So it used, you know, years ago it was just stay in bed, but it's really relative um, in terms of re don't don't overexert yourself physically or, or cognitively. So really, you're trying to get your brain to rest. Yes. So that's okay. an important point that many people don't realize. We think first of physical rest, and then people say, well, you know, it's usually pretty relaxing when I go to the mall. So maybe I'll just do that. And then they get there and the noise, the commotion, the stimulation is awful. And they end up feeling just as bad as they did uh, right after they hit their head. I, I will say also, Amber, that while rest is the most important thing, and in most cases, really, that's the main thing people need, um, our program uh, offers a lot of additional treatment uh, suggestions, recommendations, in cases where we don't see that typical recovery of a week or two. Um, so in your program, you, you see some athletes, or is it, is it mostly athletes? No, it's ath you know, about 20% of all concussions are caused by sports and recreation. That's, um, most of those are gonna be with your high school, college age youth. Um, but actually, I would say the majority of the concussions that we see in the program are from falls, motor vehicle accidents, okay. um, other so, causes. But okay. we do see um, a, our fair share of sports concussions. So a range of ages of patients, too? Absolutely. 
I think that there's a lot of press with sports-related concussion, but often uh, people forget that you can get a concussion walking down the street and tripping off the curb and, and hitting your head. So Slipping on ice it, this time of year. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Many work uh, sites, many jobs, there's increased risk for head injury. People working on ladders or with machinery, um, people working outdoors. So we see lots of uh, injuries that are caused by people at work as well. Are there um, different treatment recommendations for seniors who have head injuries or children, uh, babies with head injuries versus, or is it pretty much the same, the rest, brain rest? In the beginning, it's going to be brain rest. Um, but, you know, as uh, Dr. Rieger mentioned before, if you're not recovering uh, in the typical uh, fashion, meaning we expect full recovery in, in days to a, a couple of, of weeks, then we really need to look at what symptoms they're having, what's bothering them, and then we, you know, we, can, we can offer different therapies uh, such as occupational, physical, speech therapy, and medications depending on the, uh, the residual symptoms. The very young and the very old share an increased risk for concussion due to falls. Um, so particularly in an elderly population, you're going to want to make sure you educate um, that patient and family about the need to be especially careful. The, the, the fall risk may be elevated already, and we definitely don't want someone to get another blow to the head while they're recovering from a concussion because the consequences of that can be worse. In the very young, the problem we face is that they can't tell us how they feel. Right. So we really have to work more <laughs> with the parents and educate the parents and, and the family members. Well, what are the chances of a complete recovery from a concussion? Is, does, do most people recover fully? Yes, the, absolutely. And the vast majority of people recover very quickly within a week or two. Um, so if someone has a concussion, especially if it's their first concussion, they're in otherwise good health, uh, without a complicated history, we absolutely would expect, uh, in the vast majority of cases, a rapid return to normal functioning. Okay. Um, well, in terms of that, that makes me think of prevention. Is there a way, do we know how to prevent concussions? Is that what helmets do? Helmets are... At this time, they're designed to prevent serious injuries to the head and, and face, um, depending on what which, uh, what specific sport you're talking about. Um, riding a bike is going to prevent serious uh, injuries to the head. If you're wearing uh, mouth gear, it's also going to be protecting uh, the, the the face and obviously the the teeth. But right as as of now, there there isn't a way to prevent. Concussion. In other words, the helmets are going to decrease the risk of, of all head injuries. But because the brain is still, it's inside the skull, and the, the forces that we're trying to prevent in terms of causing a concussion would be a deceleration, I'm sorry, acceleration, deceleration um, movement, as well as a rotational force. So the helmet isn't going to, to stop that. But certainly, we encourage the use of helmets. Um, and in addition to that, it's really making sure that there's a proper fit and that um, that they're in good condition. A lot of people are wearing helmets and they're too loose, and that may not also be helpful for them. You can put a helmet on the head, but you can't put a seatbelt on the brain. That's, that's what I like to say. So just mm -hmm. like if you're in your car and you don't have your seatbelt on, the car may protect you, but if you're thrown around inside the car, 
then you're not getting the protection you would otherwise. And that's the problem. We can't put a seatbelt on the brain. Um, so the helmets prevent more serious injury, as Dr. Ward mentioned. In terms of prevention, um, I think the, the increased awareness due to CTE, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. as well as the increased awareness of concussion, there have been um, efforts to reduce the risk of head trauma. For example, in youth hockey, they raise the age at which you start checking. Um, other sports, they have uh, tightened up the rules um, with more severe penalties for targeting the head. Um, so there are definitely some rule changes and other things that can be done. I would say one of the things that we focus on at the concussion center is just education. Because one of the biggest problems is people don't know when a concussion occurs and they don't take the proper steps to manage it. And that we know can lead to greater problems due to the injury. So that's a kind of secondary prevention. We're Maybe we can't prevent the first injury, but we can make sure that we prevent more serious problems than we should have by making sure people do the right things. So if someone, if an athlete is injured, um, don't send them back into the game, right? Um, that's what you're saying. With that, it, It's saying that, but also uh, along the same lines of when do you seek uh, uh when do you seek assistance from a healthcare professional? When, if you suspect a concussion, have, seeing someone, not necessarily in the emergency department or an, or an urgent care setting, but seeing someone who's familiar with concussion is important, not only for the education piece, which is a large part of it, but also when is it safe to resume your typical activities? So that might include work, that might include going back to school, that will also include when is it safe to, to do, uh, be more physically active, and Obviously, uh, when is it safe to return to any contact kind of sports? Good advice. Well, thank you both for being here. My guests have been Chief Psychologist Brian Rieger and Dr. Claudine Ward. Um, They're both from the Upstate Concussion Center, and they're both from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, skin care for seniors on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our skin changes as we age, and the dermatologic issues we face when we are young are different than what we may face in our older years. Here to go over this is Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the differences between young skin and old skin. Sure. So uh, this is a very timely subject, actually. Uh, statistics done about uh, 10 or 20 years ago show that the U.S. population is going to double or triple by the 
uh, end of the first quarter of the 21st century, which is mm. coming up pretty soon. And so there are uh, quite a few differences between elderly skin and uh, young skin. And these differences in pathophysiology actually do result in certain uh, skin conditions that we find more commonly in the elderly. So um, the uh, main changes, uh, I think, can be described as changes in physiology. So that is to say, the skin when you're younger is generally thicker than it is when you're older. Um, the uh, turnover of the skin, how quickly and how efficiently the skin regenerates itself is also changed, and it's obviously less in the elderly. Uh, the elderly skin retains less water. So in fact, there are more trans-epidermal water losses in our elderly population, which means uh, water content leaves the skin more readily and it makes it drier and then more prone to inflammation and so forth. Uh, there are also other changes in the immune system. Really, if you think about it, the skin, because it has immune cells, is one of the first uh, barriers uh, or points of contact uh, with our immune system to the outside world. So a lot of the immunity issues we have um, is achieved through our skin. So the immune system in the elderly tells, tends to slow down. There are less uh, immune cells, B and T cells. Uh, they signal each other less efficiently and so forth. So the immunity of the skin goes down. I never realized that. Is mm -hmm. that why one of the reasons why uh, elderly people may be more prone to pick up infections? Or? Yes, that's huh. uh, exactly true. Uh, and the infections can range from bacterial to yeast infections and so forth. But that's, that's very true huh. as well. Uh, the blood flow in the skin changes. So uh, elderly skin, the, the capillary loops, which are the small blood vessels that feed the skin, are shortened uh, and um, they're smaller, etc. So there's less blood flow to the skin. So, so with less blood flow, is that why sometimes old people seem like they're always cold? Uh, that's certainly part of it. I mean, one of the functions of the skin is thermoregulation. So our internal core body temperature has a lot to do with our skin. And when the skin is diseased, whether it's in the young or in the old, uh, that ability to regulate our core body temperature is compromised. So thermoregulation, which is one of the functions of the skin, also changes in the elderly. Um, uh, there are some other changes. There are fewer glands. The lipid content of our skin also changes. Uh, the number of sweat glands goes down, etc. So there are a number of significant physiologic differences. Now, the one that seems most visible is wrinkles. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard you mention wrinkles, but these things that you've talked about play into that, right? Sure, right. So there's the issue of what, you know, what causes our skin to age. And there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that there are intrinsic uh, uh, sort of methodologies or processes, rather, of aging. And these are universal and inevitable. Uh, and that's true, right? So there are, physio there are programmed uh, cellular behaviors that cause aging, right? There's cell death and etc. So that's something we can't control. That's uh, in our genetic makeup. And then there are extrinsic factors that contribute to aging. And basically, that's the DNA damage uh, acquired through years and years of uh, sun exposure or, or ultraviolet light exposure. And 
Uh, honestly, there, those two processes are probably at work, both intrinsic and e- extrinsic. I would say, though, that most of the signs of what we perceive as older skin, wrinkling, uh, blotchy discoloration, uh, laxity of skin, uh, etc., those are predominantly related to ultraviolet light radiation. So I think both are at play, but what we visually perceive as older skin, those visual things we perceive are are mostly from ultraviolet light exposure. So sort of as a dermatologist looking at someone's skin, you you can tell sort of how they've lived their life in some sure, ways. Sure, right? you can, yes. Uh, it's not an exact science, but uh, you can tell. Um, of course, some people are more protected than others by the uh, natural pigment content that they have in the skin. But young or old, you can take into the, you can take those factors into account and you can tell whether they've been outdoors all the time and whether they've protected their s- skin with sunscreen, etc., now, you mentioned um, uh, fewer sweat glands. We mm-hmm. lose sweat glands as we age. Does that mean we sweat less? Uh, we, we sweat less, and we have a decreased ability to control our core body temperature mm-hmm. because, of course, one of the mechanisms of uh, temperature control is through sweating. And, and so I might add that's why, for example, uh, in very hot climates, when there is a heat wave, you know, who are the most vulnerable well, it's usually young kids and the elderly. So both extremes of the age uh, spectrum for different reasons are more vulnerable. But of course, the elderly, because they don't have as many sweat glands. So a heat wave is much more dangerous for someone who doesn't have air conditioning living okay. somewhere in the south or equatorial areas. Uh, what about nerves in the, in the skin? Do- so those are affected as well. Um, those have physiologic changes, and uh, the nerves probably don't work quite as well. And so that ties into one of the common uh, problems of older skin is that the elderly tend to itch. And we don't know exactly why they itch, but it must surely have something to do with their cutaneous nerve endings. You know, nerves give off signals. They can give off um, uh, t- uh, signals for pressure, heat, etc., but they also give off pain signals. And in the elderly, because the nerves are not working quite as well, they must give off a weaker pain signal that is perceived by the brain as itch. This is at least a theory. We haven't mm-hmm. been able to prove it. But that certainly has something to do with one of the common elderly skin conditions, which is itching. Well, these physio- physiologic changes that we've been talking about, does, do these set the elderly up for specific skin diseases? Y- yes, they, they do, for sure. So we can go through some of the specifics uh, that we find in the elderly. So as I mentioned, itching is one of the most common presenting symptoms of elderly skin. And as I said before, we don't know quite why uh, this goes on, but it surely has something to do with uh, what you could best describe as as a quasi-neuropathy. The nerves are not quite so normal. Um, the skin being thinner is more uh, susceptible to uh, chemicals that might be irritating to the skin, and they therefore might be absorbed more rather than the skin acting as a barrier. Um, 
the uh, elderly, because of their age, have underlying medical conditions. These can be metabolic disorders. These can be endocrine conditions. These can be problems with the kidney and liver. And disease in all of those organs can translate to itching in the skin. Um, and of course, there's uh, the issue of the skin becoming more dry. Remember, we had just said that uh, there's more transepidermal water losses in the elderly skin. So um, older skin can best be described as dehydrated. And when it gets to a certain degree, again, uh, the pathophysiology is changed to a degree that then there is inflammation in the skin as a reaction, and that can cause itching as well. So we have itching, uh, we have dry skin, um, the skin is much thinner. You know, sometimes I have to do biopsies on on elderly individuals for various reasons. And I myself, you know, being a dermatopathologist, have the opportunity to look under the microscope. And sometimes the epidermis, which is the top layer of the skin, is literally two cells thick. So it's wow. very thin, and therefore it's... Um, predisposed to mechanical trauma and shearing forces and so forth. So it's very fragile and it can tear, uh, not only with uh, sort of normal day-to-day -day activities where you might brush up against a doorknob or something, but for those elderly individuals who are incapacitated and are wheelchair-bound or bedridden, that constant pressure can lead to ulcerations. So chronic um, uh, sort of bed sores uh, are more common in the elderly. And again, that has to do with the thinness of the skin, the fact that the elderly have decreased peripheral blood flow, so there's not as much blood flow to the skin. Um, and, of course, uh, some of the underlying medical conditions can decrease their ability to heal their wounds. Um, in addition to that, uh, we spoke about the decreased number of immune cells in the skin, so that predisposes them to bacterial infections, um, yeast infections, especially if individuals have underlying conditions like diabetes and so forth, which oftentimes uh, they do. And uh, then there's the issue of malignancy, right? We had spoken about intrinsic and extrinsic reasons for skin aging. And the DNA damage uh, that one has accumulated over the years can manifest as a skin cancer when you're older. But I would also like to say that the elderly have decreased uh, DNA repair mechanisms. So I often tell patients, even though the latency period to develop a skin cancer may be decades, in the elderly, it is still worthwhile to use sunscreens, even though they've done their damage many years ago. Uh, they have less ability to repair the DNA damage that they're incurring right now. Right now. Huh. Right. So sunscreens are an important part of elderly skin care because they have a higher risk of malignancy. And again, related to the thinness of the skin, there's bruising. All the time people come to my office and say, hey, doc, what's this, what's this discolored area on my arm? And it's actually just a bruise. And that happens, again, because the skin is thinner. 
uh, the dermis, which is the scaffolding of the skin where all your collagen is, that's thinner too. And that, in our youth, acts as uh, a pad, so to speak. And so when you traumatize the skin, it can absorb some of the energy, kind of like padding. Mm. Well, that goes away in the elderly. And so what happens is with minor trauma, their blood vessels burst and they leak blood into the skin and you see it as a bruise. And this is compounded by uh, the situation where most of the elderly are on, or many of them are on blood thinners. Uh, aspirin even being one of them, and almost everyone is on aspirin these days. Um, and those bruises may take a longer time to heal. They take a long time to heal, and by the time one of them has healed, you, you probably can. get another one. Well, I yeah. also want to ask you um, sort of how you treat these things, the dry skin and itching, and, and kind of segue into some general advice for promoting healthy skin sure. for seniors. Um, so uh, obviously, if there's a specific infection that needs to be treated medically with medications, either creams or systemic agents, if there's a skin cancer, usually that has to be treated surgically. Um, if there's a problem like itching and so forth, again, you have to take it as a case-by-case basis. Why is this patient itching? Is it just because they have dry skin? Or do they have an underlying disease that's causing them to itch, like uh, diabetes, sure. for example, or renal disease? Are they institutionalized? Could they be? Could they have scabies? Uh, right. So obviously, you have to look at it as a case by case basis. But in terms of general measures. Um, one of the things we just talked about is, is skin cancer. So the elderly, when they go outside, should have sunscreen applied. Uh, I think one of the least costly and most effective uh, measures that people can pursue is to just moisturize the skin. When the water content and the lipid content of the skin are more normalized, that can sort of erase a multitude of sins, so to speak, for the skin. It can just make the, the physiology of the skin healthier. And a lot of the things we've been talking about, like the itching and so forth, can be treated. So, so any, any sort of moisturizing lotion or cream? or Yes, the trick is to use them more often. And I think the over-the-counter ones are generally all equivalent. It's a question of finding one that you like, uh, and therefore will use often. And so liberal use is very important, and especially after the shower. So when people shower, they should sort of blot dry, not scrub dry, leave a little bit of water content on the skin, and then put the moisturizer on within three minutes or so. But I will say, in terms of the over-the-counter products, look for products that have ceramides in them. So those are uh, lipids that get depleted in the skin, and I find those very helpful. But ceramides. Ceramides. C-E-R-A-M-I-D-E-S? Correct. Ceramides, okay. Yes. Um, now, what about bathing? Right. So the bathing should be uh, limited to, to once a day. Usually in the elderly, if they're debilitated and, and so forth, that's not an issue. They don't measure, they don't, uh, you know, bathe daily. But once a day, not more. Uh, use lukewarm water, not very hot water, because hot water can actually make uh, the skin drier because it, it evaporates off your skin and takes what water in, huh. is in the skin with it. So lukewarm water, not more than 10 minutes. Use what, a, what about soap? Yeah, use a good soap uh, that has oil in it, like, um, you know, Dove is a good soap. Aveeno is an oatmeal-based soap, etc. And try and avoid uh, things that have a lot of scents and so forth in them. 
um, and then uh, blot dry and use that moisturizer on. Um, put a humidifier in, in the room. This is especially true of um, the northern climates where in the winter we have a lot of forced air heating, the air gets drier, it's less humid anyway. Um, and lastly, I'd say, you know, good nutrition uh, and personal hygiene is very important. You know, a lot of the elderly may not be eating right. Um, so, so those general measures that promote general health anyway will improve the quality of the skin. Some women perhaps might need hormonal therapy, but this is best discussed with, with their primary care doctor or their uh, geriatric uh, doctor. Um, and, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things I think are very important. I, I should say that the elderly oftentimes because of the disease that results to infirmity, they're just not able to take care of their skin. They're not able to bathe uh, frequently. They're not able to put their uh, moisturizers on or their sunscreens. They're, they don't eat perhaps correctly. So uh, someone who can help them with these things, if, if they have someone who's helping them and aid, uh, those sort of nutrition and personal hygiene issues, if they're incorporated uh, into the AIDS repertoire, can help their skin. It seems like some basic stuff, but it, it's very important. It's, like so. it's basic. That's well, right. thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We are living in a time of constant migrations, displacements, forced removals. The stories of the people who endure these dislocations are not often told. But Oregon professor and poet Christopher T. Keveny gives voice to them in his poem, Native, Non-Native. Insofar as the non-native has his own problems, the umbrella that he carries around just in case, along with the broken compass, more boomerang really than magnet-oriented, to bring him back to the starting point. Note his surprising faith in the dismal science, homespun after a fashion, burnt bridges he never intended to cross, the coffin nail predicated on its own failed logic, he learned all that he needed to know about playing the outsider in the margin, where shore met simply more shore, and those who could afford the journey dreamt of a tide that kept creeping away, a spot where the natives had piled rock upon rock as a kind of memorial to the lapping of waves, the ideal location for non-natives to gather after lunch before slipping away in clusters to lay low until nightfall, to trace freedom in the sand with their big toes, a ritual to keep the brokers at bay. It will never be as you imagined, says the native to the non-native. Arriving has always been the easy part. Surmising the probability of the sea in a carnival town, 
the place where he and his family arrived with shawls, spices, and the ingenuity of duct tape, cutbacks through the steep promontory up from the beach merely prolonged the agony of acculturation. The nod of sunflowers all the way to the safe house, obliging them to make a day of it, credit accrued for the time served in the camps where he rarely bedded down, banking on small consolations in a ravaged city, the not-quite-young non-native, deprived of the insularity of the native drawl. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss robotic thoracic surgery. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.